there's a ton of trails here, like 10 minutes away. Like I can hit like a bunch of different trail systems are super close. I do run on the beach sometimes like on the sand, um, but not that often. And then most of my weekends, I, I hit up the mountains and there's mountains like I mean, less than an hour away. So it's uh, get some elevation training. Um, there's mountains now that are covered in snow, but there's also some lower mountains so I can still get like good climbing in. Um, mm -hmm. And I run probably like, I try to hit 50 miles a week, sometimes like 70, you know, like just depends on my training load. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is an ultra runner, formerly running in college, much like I did. So it's interesting to see where we kind of diverge in paths post-college. Uh, she has her master's in English. She's the author of two different poetry collections, Surviving 23, and I Like It Because It's Pink. She's also the author of the blog, theprosius.com. Welcome to the show, Sarah McMahon. Hi, thanks for having me. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Uh, before we were, you know, officially recording, I was giving you a hard time about being in California because I'm jealous and I had to run when it was five degrees outside this morning and you're like, oh, it's like 60 here. And I think you've got a coffee. If you're on the YouTube version, you can see like steam coming up Sarah's screen. Right coffee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you're having like a nice, relaxing, enjoyable, not freezing your ass off kind of, kind of morning. Definitely not freezing for sure. No. And it's sunny. It's nice. It's nice. I can't lie. I'm in Southern California. I'm in um, Orange County. So right below LA. So it's not like as crazy hectic as LA, but you still get the nice weather, all the, all the good things. And I live like half a mile from the beach. So is that, so then, okay. With ultra training, I mean, are you, I, I know this, this camp kind of gets split. It seems like with the different ultra runners I've, I've talked to over time, are you um, one of the, like, I'll say lower mileage ultra runners. That's like, hey, I'll just, you know, I'll kind of put in some miles, but then like maybe put in 40, 50 miles and then also go do a 50 miler? Or is it like putting in massive miles each week and then are you headed to the beach to do that? Like, how, you know, where, where are you doing that around where you are? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's a ton of trails here, like 10 minutes away. Like I can hit like a bunch of different trail systems are super close. I do run on the beach sometimes like on the sand, um, but not that often. And then most of my weekends, I, I hit up the mountains and there's mountains like I mean, less than an hour away. So it's uh, get some elevation training. Um, there's mountains now that are covered in snow, but there's also some lower mountains so I can still get like good climbing in. Um, mm -hmm. And I run probably like, I try to hit 50 miles a week, sometimes like 70, you know, like just depends on my training load. Um, I don't do super well hitting like a hundred miles a week. Mm -hmm. uh, plus like, I just don't have time. Like I'm working full time and doing other stuff. So, um, and then also I, I strength train like two to three times a week, so. I think it's always the struggle and it's, it seems like I always have a lot of admiration for 
the long, long distance athletes, you know, ultra runner, 70.3 Ironman. Um, you know, I, little, I did a little 70.3 for a few years. Um, it's it just trying to work full time, get in the hours, you know, like it's, we admire the pros, right? They're like out there crushing it. Um, I guess I can't speak for ultra cause I'm not deep in the community. I don't know if there's a ton of ultra runners that just run, but you know, the top pros in triathlon, that's uh-huh. all they do versus like the amateurs who have to keep doing a day job and take care of their family and put in all the hours. It's, it's a Herculean load. And especially for anybody that has, you know, a spouse or a partner, um, kudos to them for tolerating it (laughs) because it takes up a lot of time. It does. It does. It takes a lot of time. And like, I, I think there's probably some ultra runners that can do that, that can just run and train and, and stuff but i think it's pretty uncommon it's not like a high revenue sport you know what i mean so. right i think i'd asked before a, a, a couple of different ultra runners i'm all, you know i'm always thinking about because this is running is my background triathlon is my background in endurance sports like how do we make it easier for you know pros to make a living is it possible like can, can we it, you know I don't want to be crass and like destroy the culture, but like, can we, can we monetize the races any better? You know what I mean? Like the more money you get in, the easier it is for, you know, pros to be paid or sponsorships to be interested and that kind of thing. Like, I think the bulk of the money probably comes from sponsorships, like, you know, gear and shoes and then Mm -hmm. social media and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But then there's something too, that's like kind of nice about, the sport not being like highly monetized and stuff right. and highly commercialized and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. That's why I said, like, I don't, I don't want to destroy it. Yeah. Cause, but that's always the, that, that's the balance. Right. I, I know, I know, I know triathlon went through this where it was like, um, like a, a few weeks ago, I talked to Ironman great Mark Allen, um, who was racing, you know, back in the eighties and nineties and was part of like kind of the birth of the sport before it blew up and became really commercialized much like you talk outside of my own expertise like like Everest is now it you know I understand Everest is kind of just like a almost like a tourist attraction there's like so many people on Everest that it's not it's not the like I'm sure it's still an epic journey but because there's so many people, it, it seems more like something to do rather than this like epic test of like personal preservation, like perseverance yeah, anymore. No, and it's also just like it's so expensive to do Mount Everest, and like there was that famous photo that someone took like years ago, right? Of like the people like lined up to climb Mount Everest, and you're yeah. just like, that's like not how a mountain should be. You know, that's I wouldn't want to climb any mountain that was like. It, they would look like they were in the queue for a grocery line. Like it was just yeah. it was insane. Yeah. It reminded me of um, like when you, uh, I don't know if you've ever been horseback riding, not no. in this situation, but it reminds me of like when you go horseback riding and it's one of those like sit on the horse and they all are like butt to nose, just in a line walking someplace. Like it seemed like <laughs> the same thing. Like you could technically say you've been horseback riding, but it's not are like are you really and they're like walking like they're not even like trotting right (laughs) right you're just sitting (laughs) that's what it is (laughs) clearly on Everest you're using your own legs but just like 
that's that that photo is what that reminded me of it's like yeah is that the actual experience you're after you know or I don't know I mean I've never 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 done Mount Everest I've, I think <laughs> the highest I've been is like 1,000 feet you know what I mean yeah so, yeah it's a whole different beast I can't really talk about that <laughs> like it's probably yeah. still really hard you know I'm sure <laughs> it is I feel like I do it but I know it's <laughs> like <laughs> he, here I am comfortable in my chair shitting on people that are you know climbing Everest well, um, I think the real people that like deserve the accolades are the the guides that take yes. you to Everest because like anyone, I mean, there's a lot of rich people in America that can be like, oh, I can pay thousands of dollars to go climb Mount Everest, but the Sherpas are like the ones that have to do it over and over again. Yeah, they're the experts, you know. So, yeah, I gosh, that reminds me. I feel like I was talking to somebody, but maybe I just read it talking about. No, I think I just read an article. It was about um, one of the guides who was like, he got overshadowed by like you know the first i don't know if it was a british guy or american guy the first person to do everest who was like oh i'm the first man to climb everest or whatever it was like no it's like the other guy that helped you get up there yeah he he ended up like doing like all the world's tallest summits it's like in a ridiculously faster record time it was like he did it in 10 months or something. I'm I'm grossly misquoting this. Are you talking about 14 Peaks? That like maybe that documentary. It's on Netflix and it's I like think so. Nepali. Um, I don't know his name, but yeah, the top like the highest 14 peaks in like seven months or something. Yeah, it was something before it was like it took years to do it. it the other like, person. The last person that did it took like seven years, and this guy just did it in seven months. And it's a great documentary. Everyone should go watch it. Yes. I was like, I haven't watched a documentary, but I feel like I read the article read an article about him. That's I was just like that's exactly what it made me think of. It was like again, are you really giving like are you is it the experience that you're actually after number one? And then two, are you are you being honest with yourself? Like because it's the other guy that's helping you up there, like whatever. Yeah, it's helping the you. Guides. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, give give credit to your team. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking of that, do you have anybody on your team? I think you have a cat, but I don't think you can take the cat on the trails. <laughs> I so. do have a cat. <laughs> oh, and he's so old and he's so needy. Um, he was actually just sitting next to me a few minutes ago. Um, do I have anyone on my team? I So I run with a group. I found a group of um, trail runners here in Southern California. Um, they're all just amazing people like they became like my second family like they're just good awesome people and we run um we have a club on on Wednesday nights we all we all meet and we run and and usually on the weekends I'll run with people from that group um that want to do like longer stuff um and just being in the community you know you meet people um when I first moved to California I trained with uh my friend Alex and he's since moved to Colorado and I think he's moving to Utah but um so we trained like every weekend. It's just good to have like a training partner, you know, hold you accountable. Mm-hmm. It's easier to get out the door, like those early, like, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. to go drive to the mountains. If someone's there and can train with you until those like training runs can take like hours, you know, six, seven, eight hours, you know, it's nice to have somebody there. And then I also have a strength training coach. Um, his name's Ben Beeler and he does, um, it's all like functional. It's based with, it's like sandbags. I use sandbags to strength train. Um, so he's been super helpful. It just helps me keep like my injuries at bay. You know, um, I think strength, strength training is really important, especially for ultra runners. Like it's a sport where durability matters, you know, and, uh, yeah, strength training is definitely, definitely something I would recommend to anybody. I think you froze. 
Yeah, this I there's something I've talked about more recently and kind of been getting back towards is hitting the gym a little bit more, you know, actually picking up some weights. And there's I mean, there's a fair amount of like strength work you can do just with body weight or like instability or resistance at home. But mm-hmm. at least for me, I really enjoy like actually going to the gym and picking up weights and doing things with weights. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, you know, given the running background, like it, I was never a, a power athlete by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's like a small window into feeling like I could be, <laughs> it's like a, a fantasy. I could, I could lift heavy things. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely some, something to be said about resilience. And like, you think about with ultras, I think maybe average Joe goes, Oh, you, you just have to be able to run a long time. It's like, yeah, but you also have to be able to recover fast enough and not get injured. And there's other, you know, pieces at play when you're like, when you're trying to do that. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit. So for, I guess for the listener, before we get into this, um, we'll, we're probably going to talk about mental health, possibly some eating disorders. So if, if you want to opt out of the rest of the con- this conversation, um, feel free to hit stop or pause and you know jettison on to the next episode. Um, but this is something that I, I think is important to talk about that I don't often get the chance to talk about. And Sarah's graciously said she's okay talking about this and kind of giving me some insights. Um, so I want to dive into this a little bit. Um, so I guess are you okay sharing maybe your story and giving us a, a primer on kind of the experience that you lived and where you are now? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think eating disorders are important to talk about, especially in the running community. And I think they're getting a little more attention than they maybe have in the past. But um, I started running when I was 12. So I started running a long time ago and 20, almost 29. So, um, and, and like, I think probably was also just like aware of my body and like shape and size from like media and like people's comments about weight and whatever. And I mm-hmm. just became like really fixated on like, I didn't want to be fat. Like I was really like deeply afraid as like a young girl of being fat. And I started running. Um, and at first it was just super fun. Like middle school was fun. High school was fun. I got a um, kind of like m- more into like not like anorexia yet, but like, well, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe like just really restrictive of my food and really careful about what I would eat and when I would eat. Um, I went through a period of like, I didn't know what I was doing, but I like knew that carbs were bad or I thought that carbs were bad. And so I stopped eating like any carb. Um, but it just made me like sick feeling. And I was like not performing very well. Um, when I was 18 is sort of when I started, um, making myself throw up and, uh, which we call bulimia (laughs) in the, in the recovery world. Um, but my mom was diagnosed with cancer. I was like alone a lot. I was like, didn't know how to handle my emotions. And it made me feel like I was in control of something. I would like eat a lot and then throw it up. Um, and by that time I'd already signed my letter of intent to go run for Bradley, which is in Illinois. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just, I just didn't know how to handle myself. Um, and I was kind of caught between this crux of like, do I, should I go away to college? I have the scholarship. I didn't grow up with much money. Like it was my ticket to go to college, right? It was a scholarship. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but I felt guilty. I felt like I should stay home. I felt like I should be closer to my mom and all that kind of stuff. So um, 
so that's when I really started purging. And then I went to college um, and Bradley had like a small team when I first started. We were a small sort of like growing team. And now they're really good. Like they just made it to nationals a few years ago. It's a division one school, but it's really small. And my coaches at the time who are not there anymore were very much um, fixated on our bodies and like the whole mentality, uh, which is sadly still around in a lot of places. It's just like, you know, the smaller you are, the faster you're going to be. They would tell us what, what to eat, what not to eat. They would make comments on our bodies. They told me to lose weight. They like, um, and like me already being in like a headspace of sort of like having disordered patterns with food. Mm-hmm. Um, it just like escalated. So I would, I would restrict, I wouldn't eat all day. I mean, it was, it was ugly. And I, I dropped a lot of weight really fast, got really fast. And then this is like sort of a pattern uh, that I've seen play out so many times um that a girl a lot like loses a bunch of weight she looks super skinny but she's running fast so everyone's like oh this is great um good for her but then she gets hurt and that happened Mm -hmm. to me too so I got really really tiny I was like Um, I know what's coming (laughs) yeah (laughs) and it's just such a predictable pattern too and and I wasn't allowing my body to like develop into a woman you know like Mm -hmm. I had like two periods like my entire until I was like 25 like (laughs) it was like I just my body was just like not developing the way it should have been because I wasn't feeding myself um and I didn't to go back to like the throwing up I wasn't doing that all the time I was doing that like very sporadically um but I was was doing other things um taking like diet pills and uh restrict heavily restricting um and it was just like it was dark like like a lot of my time in college was just like me being caught up in this like mental disorder and not really being present you know Mm -hmm. so um so my junior year is when I tore the my right labrum my hip Mm. and um it was sort of maddening because I was super fast my coaches were uh heavily involved and very much like you know concerned about my body and when I got hurt they one of the things they said was like oh you got to be careful now that you're hurt not to gain any weight that'll make it coming back so much harder so I went and got surgery and I had those voices in my head like oh don't don't gain any weight like while you're injured which is like the opposite thing that I should have been doing I should have been taking care of my body to you know enable it to recover faster um but I just continued to starve myself and then I uh when I was like, you know, I was in crutches, I lost a bunch of my muscle mass because I wasn't using my legs. And so I like got really, really tiny. I dipped like below a hundred pounds and um, my coaches were like, you look amazing. And I was just like, this is so fucked up. <laughs> I'm How so tall hurt. are you? I'm five, four. Um, okay. Still. I'm four. Um, but for reference now I am about 150 pounds and like 20% body fat. Or, yeah. So like, I'm not like, I'm pretty like muscular and I've always been pretty muscular so like um and like yeah so like even when I was like fit and running and stuff I still held like a good amount of muscle and so like losing all that and getting really tiny and then them telling me like you look great I was like what's happening (laughs) like like I'm losing all of my fitness and they're telling me I look great like and it was just it was bizarre um so while I was recovering from my hip surgery I just like sank deeper and deeper into this eating disorder I got like super withdrawn um the only like outlet I had was my writing and so I I just wrote a bunch um but the reason I uh sought treatment was because I was living with a boyfriend at the time and uh I was ordering like diet pills or some shit on Amazon and he he saw it when he was like what are you what are you doing like are you okay and I was like fuck I'm not okay like I'm not okay and I went I went to our health center on campus I had like a three-hour conversation with a therapist there who was like 
lovely, but she was like, this is out of my hands. I can't really help you. And so then I, I she referred me to a hospital downtown and I went um, to treatment there. And I remember the thing that kind of, I guess like my sort of rock bottom was at my initial intake at this hospital, at this like mental health facility that I sat down with a doctor. Like the nurse went through all the things, took my measurements, took my vitals. Um, they ran some labs on just like my liver and like <laughs> seeing what was working, what wasn't. My liver was sort of like um, in overdrive um, and uh, a lot of the enzymes were super high and she's like, this is really common. And I told her I hadn't had a period for years and I was almost proud of that. Like I was proud of not right. menstruating, um, which is kind of sick, but kind of common. And this doctor came in and he sat down and he like looked and I'm like wearing like a hospital robe, right? And he just like mm -hmm. looked at me and he's like, <laughs> he's like, you know, I've seen so many people walk through these doors and um, you know, he's like, if you continue on the path, you're on you're gonna die like you can choose to get help or you're gonna die and I was just like fuck like I didn't want to die you know like I didn't think that like me start like I, I guess I knew that like that's what where it was gonna head but I just was so deep in my eating disorder that I just was like well I don't want to die but I also don't really want to get better because <laughs> it's scary and you have to like totally uh change you know everything that you're doing so um so that's when I started treatment but it took a like it took years to like totally overcome everything because I was like a decade into my eating disorder at the time and like my neural pathways were just like telling me <laughs> like a certain way to live and be and that was to like restrict and that food was bad and that carbs are bad and like all the things you know so mm -hmm. um I was in treatment for about five and a half years and I had um a couple different therapists and then um the the thing that really helped me was um a therapist dietitian team and so the dietitian was able to um kind of just like with science <laughs> dispel all of the myths that I held about food and what was good and what was bad. Um, and the therapist, I mean, it was, it was intensive. It was like a couple times a week with a therapist, every other week with a dietitian. Um, and like the only thing that that got me really over it was just time, you know, like I had to be away from the environment of competitive sports for a while and away from those coaches who were kind of just um, I guess condoning my eating disorder to put it bluntly mm, right. um, I had to be away from that and like in the world of non-athletes like normal people who yeah. were like happy and living their life and they weren't concerned with when their next workout would be and they weren't concerned with like how many calories were in the thing from the restaurant or whatever um, so that was really helpful I, I didn't run for about I didn't run at all for like about a year um, mm -hmm. and then I moved to California and I slowly slowly started running on the trails um, when I first moved here, I lived like a mile away from this really awesome like trail system. So I would run there, run in the trails and run home, but I wasn't like structured about it. I would just run when I felt like it. Um, didn't sign up for any races. Wasn't sure if I even wanted to run. Like I was just like, I need to figure out my brain so that like my, my body can, you know, catch up. And so, so I didn't really start like training for ultras until I felt pretty good with my eating disorder, but it kind of lingered. Like I remember a conversation with my dietitian um, after my first ultra was 50 miles and I didn't know what to do. Like I didn't know how much to eat or how often to eat or how much to drink or anything like that. So mm -hmm. my first conversation, one of my conversations with her about that was just like, what am I doing wrong? You know, like it felt so bad. I finished, I ran an okay time, but I was just like, oh, it felt terrible. Like, what would help me feel better? And she was like, well, you need to eat more. And I was like, okay. So, so ultras actually kind of helped me get like over the last little hurdle because um, there's like such a direct correlation with like feeling enough and how you're going to feel on like mm -hmm. a 50 mile run, right? Like you could 
under fuel and you're then you're gonna bonk and then it's like a death march but if you right. like if i feel like i continue to like eat and drink and do like take care of my body i feel amazing and i feel like i could run forever so um that was pretty profound for me too but yeah there's like no i think the thing about mental health and like mental disorders is there's no like clear like oh you're better now it's not like mm -hmm. you break your leg and okay the fissure's gone and now you can walk and okay you're fine now you know it's like it's not like that it's like there were so many setbacks and like so many times that I was like, am I ever going to be over this? And so many times that I like kind of relapsed in a way and made myself throw up again after a year of like not doing that. And so, um, yeah, like now I, I feel like I'm better because I don't really, uh, think about my body. I don't think about how it looks. I think more about what it can do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really, I don't weigh myself. Like I don't count calories. Like I don't do any of the things that I used to do. And I'm, stronger faster um and healthier than i've ever been and i think uh man like i wish i had had this mindset when i was in college you know like i well, i wonder what would have been different but you can't look back on stuff like that so i just kind of like take it as like a learning learning journey for me but um yeah i like to leave out the gruesome details that's like a succinct i guess overview of the eating disorder yeah um i mean there's a lot to dive into there um for for you the listener if you want to get more into the science of fueling what happens when you don't fuel properly go back to episode 111 with alex coates former professional triathlete um working on her phd and she does research into that um specifically into relative energy deficiency syndrome or reds um and her and her twin sister are both professional triathletes uh in canada and I think her sister went through an eating disorder. So she has some kind of personal history with that as well. So we talk about that. And, um, but you mentioned uh, that, that mentality of like being proud of like not having a period. Mm -hmm. And it, so both men and women can have their uh, hormones just totally fucked up if you're, you know, running too low on fuel. Um, in men, it's not as overtly obvious, I guess, like your sex drive will go in the toilet, but like, if you're not really paying attention or like you don't have a partner, then you may just be focused on running and not, you know, have that. Whereas like women, it's more obvious every month there's nothing. Right. Um, but that mentality is, I think it's pervasive. It's like, it's this mentality of, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm making something here, um, of like that work hard, be faster, just go, go, go. Like, I don't know if it's a very American thing or if it's just sports centric, mm -hmm. but it's like this idea that if you just push harder, then you'll be better. And that's the only thing you need to do. And, and I don't know how many, how many athletes I've talked to. I think the women stand out in my mind in particular, gosh, I've forgotten her name, uh, Vanessa Raw, she's a performer, a former professional triathlete, ITU for uh, Britain. Same thing with her coach when she was just pushing her all the time and she's injured and can't keep up. But there's like this pride that goes with it, right? It's like, yeah. I'm strong enough to deal with all these things and push myself farther than anybody else can. And it's like, it's like a badge of honor. It is. And it's really bizarre because it doesn't correlate to better performance ever. Right. <laughs> like it's not. Right. And it's like, it's so pervasive. 
and so pervasive though and it, it kind of reminds me of um david goggins a little bit just like stay hard mm. keep pushing don't be a little bitch or whatever and it's just like okay like but why <laughs> like why are you doing that and i don't think anyone really like interrogates like why they're pushing themselves so hard because if it's to perform better it's not going to work and i think um there's a book I read called Roar and it's about how women and men are different, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the hormones that women experience and how we should train differently. Yeah. And I think that that's something that like, I've only ever had like male coaches and they only, they kind of just coached the women, like they coached the men, right? Yeah. Except like sometimes our mileage would be less. Like they'd run, like men would be running 80 miles and we'd be running like 70 or whatever. <laughs> like, And I'm like, but like our hormones, our bodies are so different. And, and like the, the coaches just probably didn't even know that, like didn't know that we would have like fluctuations in our energy and like uh, that we would need like more rest during certain times of the month or like whatever. Mm -hmm. Like there was just so many things that they didn't understand. And I, I think rest is such like, um, kind of like a secret weapon sometimes. Like, I don't know, like a, a healthy runner is going to beat an injured runner any day of the week, number one, but also like if I go to a race a little bit undertrained, I'm probably going to beat someone who's overtrained mm -hmm. because like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and sleep is so important. Recovery, like take, like I rolling out my muscles, doing yoga, like all of these things keep me healthy and injury free. And like, yeah, there's not a focus on that. I think maybe it's not as like glorious to be like, oh, I slept today instead of, oh, I hammered my body and just destroyed it again, even though I wasn't ready to, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think part of it is like um, lack of research. And this is another, so, so many people I've talked to that come into my, Dr. Chris Minson, who is a researcher at the University of Oregon. Um, he's like really working on trying to almost specialize in like the differences in like female physiology versus male physiology and performance and recovery and like he does like heat acclimation stuff. He's got this at, at Hayward Field. He's got a lab that's does all these different kind of climate controls. He's got like a you know super study lab he can use. But he talks about on the episode with him. Um, he talked about just like he was so interested because there's such a giant hole of non-information. There's just nothing like there's just nothing there, and. Uh, but I know there are some coaches that do pay attention. I think the first time I really remember like a distinct philosophy being like told to me um, was the swim coach in my college who I went back when I, you know, I was doing triathlon after college and I went back to train with him and he said, you know, generally speaking, the women on the team can handle more mileage, can go for longer, can do more days in a row. But the men are better at like short, sharp, high power, mm -hmm. but then they often need more recovery. They'll, like they break, e the men break easier than the women do. Yeah. He was like, I can, I can ride the women like harder for longer. And they're like in the like kind of endurance setting. Mm -hmm. I don't know about his sprinters, um, but in that setting, like he, he could, really push them with more workouts and they need a little less recovery versus the men, which if they did the same thing, he was like, I'll, I'll break them. They just don't, you know, hold up the same. And I don't know if that's universal. I don't know if that translates to 
running or powerlifting or other sports. I know I've talked about it with a, a number of different guests. Mm. Um, but I do think I, it's important to try to differentiate. I, yeah, I think that's interesting. I think, um, I don't know what the research is, but there is like, it's a pretty well-known fact that like the longer the races are, like the shorter the gap is between the mm -hmm. men and the women, right? Especially in running. Mm -hmm. So like the longer, longer races, like women can perform better, I guess, the longer we go or something. But I also yeah. think that like training wise, um, it's, it's such like an individual thing. Like I know now, cause I've been running for so long that my sweet spot is like 60 miles a week. Like that's mm -hmm. a good, if I get 50, I'm happy. 60 is like good. And if I go over that, like, it's almost like too much. And I, I can't like sustain six, like 70 mile weeks, week after week, you know? Right. And I think that understanding your own body is so much like I used to just listen to my coaches like oh coach you want me to run 80 miles a week okay um mm -hmm. <laughs> or you want me to run uh, a workout this morning and then lift and then run again and uh what's that going to do for me like I never interrogated what they said mm -hmm. um and now I've I've had the option to like hire a running coach or like get another running coach and I just don't really want one because I feel like I know my body so well at this point um I don't really need the input from someone else maybe it would be helpful but I don't really I don't think I really need it but yeah, I think knowing your own body and knowing its limits and knowing when to push those limits and when to like, you know, back off a little bit is really important. Super important. That's the thing I don't really understand about kind of collegiate environment. And I only have lived one life and been through one collegiate program, although with two different sets of coaches, I guess. Um, but it's like, you know, you're all kind of lumped together. Like, we're all running thousands until you get to track and it's like okay middle distance versus long distance or whatever like some that gets split out a little bit but just talking about cross-country season we're all running thousands a day we're all running 400s we're all going on a long run it's all the same distance you know sometimes it's split out like the women are doing this or the men are doing this but yeah it's 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 like this one size fits all prescription when it seems like to me, um, and maybe maybe colleges are just hiring unqualified people. <laughs> sorry, sorry to my coaches. Um, <laughs> but like, and maybe it's just a it's a, a, a time and money issue. I know like one of my coaches uh, we called Mr. T. Uh, God bless him. His name's Kevin. It's a long story. I won't get into call, why we call him Mr. T. But like my co my my, co my college paid him like five hundred bucks a month. It was like nothing. Yeah. So that's you know time and money issue there. But just you should be able to break people out where it's like I could tolerate a little bit more mileage than some of the other guys. Hmm. But like when we did four hundreds, even though I was usually one of the fastest on the team, if we're doing short fast stuff, I'm in the back. I mean, it's a very clear delineation that like, that's my weakness. That's the strength. Yeah. I feel like you should be able to tailor like get kind of mini pods, so to speak, mm -hmm. like figuring out where people's strengths and weaknesses are and, and break them out a little more instead of just being like, we're all doing the same thing. I don't, I just don't, I don't understand why that happens. I feel like there's, um, it's probably a time and money issue. And I, I, I think I mean, the entire world of division one athletics was like, it's the, when I was in high school, it seemed like such a shiny, awesome, cool thing. And it yeah. was awesome and cool because it paid for my school and I'm so grateful. Right. And I love Bradley to this day. Um, but 
I mean, we're like, there was so many of us, we were kind of just numbers, you know? And like what the coaches cared about was like winning conference or whatever. And then getting to regionals, getting to nationals, they didn't care that much, like who the top seven were. They just cared that the top seven could run fast. You know what I mean? And like, we, we were kind of just like numbers and they kind of just threw the program at us. If you can handle it, great. If you can't, whatever, like that there's someone next, like behind you, that's going to fill your spot. So like they cared less about the athlete as a person than about like the overall performance of the program because that's how they got paid more you know what I mean and mm-hmm. it it's definitely like a little bit of a college athletes are just never and they're like they'll tell you whatever like I think like that's another thing when they recruited me they're oh we're so excited to have you we're gonna take care of you we're gonna do this for you we're gonna do that for you and like they're saying that because they wanted me to come run for them because I was fast you know what I mean like they weren't right. like really they didn't really probably care that much about me so um that kind of I had to kind of learn that once I was there and I was a little bit disillusioned. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. so this is, this is how this is. And mm-hmm. I mean, take that across any sport. I mean, there's like college basketball players and football players who I think just recently they could like take sponsorship money and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they couldn't even take money for their names being like on jerseys and in the bookstore and like whatever, like they're making a lot of money for these universities and the university doesn't really care, but they just care about the money these student athletes are generating. And it's, right. it's like being in that environment. I'm sure, you know, I mean, it's just, it, you can see it. So it's so obvious. And, and then the argument, you know, that, oh, we're giving you free school as like a form of payment. You're like, okay, yeah, it's not really paying me. <laughs> and it's also, I mean, I mean, I don't know where you went, where'd you go to school? I went to William Jewell. It's a very small liberal arts school here in the Midwest. So okay. School yeah. like a thousand people. There's not it's not a very big that's tiny. Yes. Smaller than my I, high school. <laughs> oh, my high school was like I graduated with 60 people. Yeah, my town was, was like twelve hundred people. It was yeah, six like sixteen hundred students in my high school. So oh wow. I went down. <laughs> well, Bradley was like a division one school, but like six thousand students-ish. Mm-hmm. And uh and I thought it was huge, but it's not big at all, no. you know. But yeah. Um but anyway, my point was that like Bradley was like 40 grand a year or something. It was like an insane amount of money. Yeah. College. Um, but I mean, to say that that's like the same thing as paying you, you're like, well, no, it's not because you're not paying me 40 grand. You're paying for this outrageously overpriced school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it shouldn't be that much. Why is it so much? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, anyway. What were you talking about? I, forgot. I don't know. We're far down the rabbit hole, but we're, yeah, we went we're... down a rabbit hole there. Oh, I was talking about the exploitation of student athletes. Yeah, we. Yeah, okay, that's done. What else? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a whole. That could be a whole episode. Just by yeah. itself. But we're actually, you know, I, I know you've got another uh, meeting coming up, so I don't want to hold you over too long. Um, so I, I have a question. Each season of the show, I come up with a question that I ask every single person that year. Um, so since we're running low on time, I'm going to ask you that question. And this year's question is, how do you celebrate your wins? How do I celebrate my wins? Uh, I know you didn't mean to stump me, but you've stumped me a bit. Um, <laughs> that's good. And the reason, the reason I'm asking this is because I don't think people do it enough. So no, we don't, we don't at all. I like, yeah. Oh my God. I don't really sometimes. I mean, how do I celebrate my wins? I don't really know. I ran. Okay. So like, for instance, a couple weeks ago, I ran a 50 miler and I ran pretty fast, I ran eight and a half hours. And I was super happy with that, but did I celebrate it? Not really. 
I just rested and now I'm back at, I'm back to training again. I don't really celebrate my wins. That's an interesting thing. I'm gonna have to think about that. I'm gonna have to figure out a way for me to celebrate my wins more. Yeah. I don't really know. That's definitely like, um, an entrepreneur friend of mine, she suggested that question for me for this year because she's bad at it. I'm bad at it. And my wife is like, yeah, how do you celebrate your wins? I'm like, well, I'm hoping to get some lessons this year so that <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can get a little bit better at it. But that's, I mean, that's kind of the point of the question, right? It's because like, yeah. I, I think we focus so much on, we did it on to the next thing. Like to take yeah. that moment. And even if it's just like in the very, the very season one's question was if you could only choose one recovery food uh, for the rest of your life, what do you choose? And a lot of people chose like junk food because it was like, that was the way they celebrated that. You know, before we got recording, I mentioned my friend Todd, who's had a couple episodes, episode three and like 32 or something. He he gets a cinnamon roll after every race. Win, lose, or draw, he gets a cinnamon roll. And that's the way he celebrates. So I, I think we should all maybe focus a little bit more on just like something, so a, a small treat, something for all the work we put in. So um, Sarah, if people want to check out the blog, grab the uh grab your poetry you know get in touch with you any of that kind of stuff where, where can they do that yeah so my blog is uh the prosiest www.theprosiest.com um i post twice a week and i have for the last like three years so there's a lot on there <laughs> i've written ad nauseum about my eating disorder and also some other stuff so um yeah definitely check that out uh you can find me on instagram at mcmountain is my handle I was hacked a couple of weeks ago, but I got my account back. Um, my poetry books, you can find those on my website or also on Amazon. Um, the latest one is called I Like It Because It's Pink. Awesome. Sarah, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Jesse. It was so good to talk to you.